You know, King David thought he almost got away with it. Here's a guy who committed adultery, murdered the husband of the woman, married the woman who's carrying his child, and he thought he got away. Until along comes Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells him a story. There were two men in a city, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many herds and flocks. The poor man only had one little lamb. The poor man loved this lamb, cared for this lamb, This lamb ate and drank off of his table, raised this lamb like it was his own child. This lamb slept in his arms at night. One day, a traveler came and visited the rich man. And instead of feeding this traveler from all of his herds and flocks, he stole the poor man's lamb, fed it to the traveler. As King David heard this story, he was enraged. He declared at the top of his voice, this man must die. And Nathan responds, you are the man. It's in that moment that the tables turned. The script was flipped. David went from the offensive to the defensive. When we get to Acts chapter 7, we see where the Sanhedrin is on the offensive. They're coming against Stephen. And for 49 verses, he walks them through the treasure map of the Old Testament. But then we see where the script is flipped. Stephen goes from the defensive to the offensive and puts the Sanhedrin on their heels. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. This rich narrative of the early church, where we came from, who we are as the church. There's just so much to unpack. We've slowed down our time when we got to chapter 7, looking through the Old Testament of, of Stephen's sermon. Here is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, who's full of wisdom. You go back to Acts chapter 6, you see where Stephen is a man who is selected to serve in a deacon-like role in the early church. He is serving the widows. He's caring for those within the early church. And he is so persuasive in his uh, arguments for the gospel that the, the Jewish leaders can't stop him. And so they begin making up these lies, these false accusations against Stephen. Because of these accusations, he is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme High Court, a group of about 70 men plus the high priest, and he is on trial for his life. The Sanhedrin has the authority to kill him. And as he is on trial, I love how chapter 6, verse 15 says that as he stood there, his face was like the face of an angel. He was calm full of peace. He was reflecting the very presence of God. Beloved, when you go through trials, when you go through hardship in your life, you can have peace. 
You can have confidence because you know that the Lord stands with you. You see, God stands with you through every trial you face. Whether it's through the sickness of a child, financial uncertainty, a cancer diagnosis, your miscarriage after miscarriage, whatever it is you face in this world, and you will face trials, Jesus promised them. When you face them, you can have peace because you know the God who made the cosmos is with you through the trial. And here is Stephen standing before a very intimidating group of men. And he begins to walk them through the narrative of the Old Testament. But as you're studying chapter 7, you can see how the tension is growing. Stephen's sermon is building to a crescendo. He has been calling out the idolatry and the apostasy of Israel and how they had continually rejected the Lord throughout their history. But now, as Stephen is about to shift the conversation, they're about to be the ones on the hot seat. And even though the Sanhedrin puts Stephen on the defensive, he becomes a prosecuting attorney. And they become the guilty defendants. The Sanhedrin may have been wondering, as Stephen's preaching, where is he going with this? As he's walking through the narrative of the Old Testament, what's he about to say? Well, now we're about to see. Look with me in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 51. Stephen says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become." You receive the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. It's in these last words that Stephen is giving the last words of God to the Jewish nation before the gospel is about to spread to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. But like an experienced boxer who is setting up the final knockout punch, Stephen builds his case for 49 verses, and then he finishes with some haymakers here in verses 51 through 53. He's been building his case from the Old Testament of Israel's rejection of the Lord and his prophets. I want you to see this morning these five indictments. Five indictments that Stephen makes against Israel and especially the Sanhedrin. The first is this. The first indictment is that Israel is stiff-necked. He begins verse 51, you. Now this is a pivotal word throughout the chapter 7. Because over and over and over again throughout this chapter, he's, he's used the word our. Okay, 11 times he uses the word our. Our ancestors, uh, our fathers, our people. But then in verse 51, he pivots and changes the pronouns of his sermon. Now it's time to apply the message to his audience. And he uses the word you. Seven times there in three verses. You, you, you. He's bringing the word of God to bear upon the hearers. That phrase, stiff-necked, was a farming term used to describe an ox that refused to obey. When a farmer would harness oxen to a plow, he would poke them with a sharp spike on their neck, trying to get them to turn or to move faster. 
When an ox refused to submit or change direction, that ox was called stiff-necked. So whenever the people heard that they were being called stiff-necked, they knew the frustration of getting an oxen to obey. That phrase, stiff-necked, it shows up 16 times in the Old Testament as a reference to the people of Israel. Whenever Israel refused to submit and follow the Lord, they were obstinate, they were stubborn, they were difficult to lead. I think some of you parents know what this feels like because you have what's called a strong-willed child. Anybody else have one besides me? Ooh, it's exhausting. You love them, you, you, you take delight in them, but for whatever reason, they're stiff-necked. They're, they're stubborn. They're obstinate. They, they refuse to follow. And there's a season where it's cute, but y'all eventually get to the point where like, this ain't cute anymore. Huh? Maybe that's you. Are you someone who's stubborn, strong-willed, unwilling to submit and follow the leadership God has placed above you? Well, what we see here in the text is this is a warning. This is a warning that we must not ever become so stubborn, obstinate, or, or stiff-necked that we're unwilling to submit to and follow the leadership of the Lord. This is what God, he continually, he gets frustrated with Israel because they refuse to follow his lead. And if you don't humble yourself, you're going to be continually fighting against the Lord for the rest of your life. Today, would you humble yourself? Would you pray, God, would you take that obstinate, stiff-necked spirit within me? And I want to see that crucified with Christ. I want to be humble. And Lord, I want to be moldable and eager to follow you wherever you lead. Well, sadly for Israel, they refuse to submit and follow. The second indictment we see is that Israel has uncircumcised hearts and eaters. Now, back in verse 8 of chapter 7, Stephen addressed how Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision. This act of cutting the flesh was one of the pillars of being Jewish. Circumcising boys became a pattern that would distinguish the Jews from other nations. So when Stephen called them uncircumcised, that comment was like a slap in the face to the seers. The Sanhedrin, in essence, he's calling them pagan Gentiles. Now, down in Chilton County, that's called them's fighting words. <laughs> As a nation, they prided themselves on physical circumcision. But their hearts were an outright defiance of the Lord. Stephen was comparing them to the Jews who had rejected Moses in the wilderness and even rejected Jeremiah at the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, he asks, Who can I speak to and give such a warning that they will listen? Look, their ear is uncircumcised, so they cannot pay attention. See, the word of the Lord has become contemptible to them. They find no pleasure in it. You see, here he's calling them uncircumcised Gentiles. Their hearts are far from God. In fact, the Ezekiel said it like this. This is what the Lord God says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh may enter my sanctuary, not even a foreigner who is among the Israelites. Stephen is telling them, not only are you like unbelieving Gentiles, you're the unclean ones. You're the ones who've defiled the temple. 
You're the ones who have uncircumcised hearts. And you can almost hear within the minds of the Sanhedrin say, oh, no, he didn't. You see, the outward circumcision that God gave Israel through Abraham was designed to point to an inner circumcision of the heart. You see, the outward symbol was pointing to an inward reality. Paul says in Romans 2 that true circumcision is not of the flesh. It's of the heart. Where the Holy Spirit cuts off our dead heart. And then from there comes new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And I say to you today, do not harden your heart. Do not allow your heart to become hard towards the Lord. May I say to you, would you pray and ask, God, would you give me a soft, moldable heart, soft like clay, so that when the sun of the truth of the gospel hits my heart, it melts like wax, doesn't harden and become hard like a rock. Oh, that you would say, God, give me a soft, gentle heart, moldable, pliable in your hands. That you, the potter, and I, the clay, you can shape me and form me in whatever way that you will. Have you allowed your heart to harden towards the Lord? Has the habit of sin crept into your life in which the intimacy with the Lord now seems distant? Have you found that your white-hot passion for Jesus has kind of cooled to a lukewarm I say to you, we have to be continu- uh, easy there, continuously diligent in watching our hearts and lives. Paul says it like this in um, 2 Timothy, no, 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 where's it at? 1 Timothy 4.12, watch your life and your doctrine closely. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul instructs Timothy, there's two things you've got to watch. Watch your life, watch your doctrine, watch your behaving, watch your believing. Because if we begin to neglect the character, the godliness of our life, the condition of our heart, because we know that the words of our mouth are the overflow of the heart, that the actions that we live flow out of the heart, but also what we believe, our doctrine, right? We got to make sure that what we believe is true. That as the world around us is quicksand, that if you try to take a step away from Scripture, all of a sudden you're sinking fast. But we are a people who are watching our life and our doctrine, and we are diligent in watching the heart, for the heart is the wellspring of life. Question, how is your heart? If you find your heart getting cold, if you can't remember the last time you wept over unbelievers, if your prayer time is limited to mealtime, you're in danger. Watch your heart closely or we can fall into the pattern of the Sanhedrin. Third thing we see, the third indictment, is that Israel resisted the Holy Spirit. Now what does the Holy Spirit do? 
His job description is all throughout Scripture, but in John 16, Jesus gives us the job description of the Holy Spirit. He tells us that He convicts the world of sin. He points us to Jesus. He um, gives us faith. He exalts Christ. He is all these things that He does. Now, please note that I'm saying He. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a He. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And the Holy Spirit is continually revealing Scripture and exalting Christ. Well, for Israel, they had a track record of resisting the Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah described the wilderness generation as they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So He became their enemy and fought against them. So in spite of the Lord's love, in spite of the Lord's patience and mercy that he has shown his people, God himself said, that's it. I'm fighting for the enemy. You guys continually reject me. You continually reject my Holy Spirit. I'm now going to start working against you. Stephen throws another punch, verse 51. As your ancestors did, you do also. He's telling the Sanhedrin, you're just like them. You may look religious on the outside, but your hearts are far from God. Jesus said this about the Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Question, what about you? Do you put up a religious facade on the outside and yet your heart is not tender or close to the Lord? Do you find yourself putting on a mask to put on a front so that people will think that you're closer to God, but deep down you know in your heart that you're not? You see, the beauty of the gospel is that it humbles all of us and we're a group of people who don't deserve to be here, but we're also a group of people in which no one's crushing it. Boy, is that liberating. The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to come here and impress anybody. You don't have to come here and put on this religious facade, this mask. You don't have to play a game. We're broken people who are loved by Jesus. We've believed the gospel. And my goodness, my life is messy apart from Jesus. My life is broken apart from Jesus. And yet what he does is he says, you know what? I know you're not crushing it yet. I still love you and I'm going to walk with you through this. And that's the culture that we want to have here as a church in which we're not trying to impress each other. We realize that we are all still in desperate need of grace. But we are all daily denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following Christ. And one day we will be perfect. That he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But we're not there yet. You'll be perfect at the resurrection. Until then, we're pursuing perfection in Christ. We are a people who are saying, I'm going to take off the mask. I'm done playing games with church. I'm done trying to act religious on the outside. Because God's not interested in the outside. God is interested in your heart. God desires this right here, your heart. And what's amazing is that when God grabs hold of your heart, it is then that he changes you from the inside out. You look 
different. You talk different. Your behavior is different. All because of what Christ has done in your heart. May I say to you, do not resist the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to your heart. He's continually seeking to change you and make you become more and more like Christ. So humble yourself. Take off your mask. Follow Christ. And we do it together. But then Stephen asks this rhetorical question, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? I kind of love the sarcasm of that, right? Uh, some of you have the gift of sarcasm. Right? Being a prophet is a dangerous calling, y'all. To be faithful to deliver God's messages to God's people at best makes you unpopular. But it was not uncommon for prophets to experience physical violence. Stephen has already highlighted Joseph and Moses as rejected prophets. This week I did a quick review of nine prophets from Scripture. Moses, Elisha, Elijah, Jeremiah, Micaiah, Hananiah, Amos, Zechariah, and John the Baptist. And here's, I've kind of condensed the treatment of their lives, okay? Here's how they were treated. They were mocked, insulted, silenced, despised, rejected by family, rejected by friends, rejected by God's people, falsely accused, prevented from going to the temple, slapped in the face, put in stocks, kept in chains, put in jails, dungeons, and cisterns. People hated them. People hated their preaching. They were threatened. Some of them were stoned to death and even beheaded. And yet these prophets were forerunners they were foreshadowing the true and greater prophets. Jesus is the one who is the true and greatest prophet who experienced great rejection and suffering and belittlement and ultimately a horrible, awful death, which points to the fourth indictment of Stephen that Israel betrayed and murdered the righteous one. The prophets pointed forward to the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Righteous One, whom the Sanhedrin, that Stephen is standing before, betrayed and murdered. They proudly declared in Matthew 23, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. No, they did far worse. They're the ones who are responsible for the death of Jesus. The blood of Jesus was on their hands. Israel had killed the one that they claimed to be waiting for. That their fathers killed God's prophets, but they had killed God's son. And sitting before Sanhedrin is the group of people who are responsible for the death of Jesus. If you remember Matthew 26 the scripture says the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. And as they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him, Jesus would stand before this same Sanhedrin that Stephen is standing before in a kangaroo court where he would be falsely accused, lied about, spit upon, slapped in the face, and sentenced to death. Can I show you a picture that really makes me angry? When Christy and I were over in Israel this past March, she took this picture. What you're looking at is the floor plan of Caiaphas, the high priest. 
We're standing upon a ledge, and underneath our feet is the dungeon in which Jesus was kept the night he was betrayed. But at the bottom of this picture is a mikvah. Now, what is a mikvah? A mikvah is a baptismal water pool that Jews would immerse themselves under before going to the temple. In fact, if you go outside the temple, there are hundreds of mikvahs everywhere, which is where I believe in Acts 2, when, when 3,000 people believed, they got baptized. Okay, there's mikvahs everywhere. In order for you to go into the temple, they'd have a place for the women, a place for the men. You would derobe, you would get naked, you'd go underwater, and then come out, and you would be ceremonially clean, ritually clean. Well, for Caiaphas, he's the high priest. He's wealthy. He has his own private, lavish mikvah. And as Jesus is in his own dungeon, as he has just conspired to kill the prophet that Moses promised, he goes into that mikvah. He comes out ceremonially clean, and yet his heart is far from God. He was playing the game. Religiously, he looked great, but his heart was far from the Lord. Do you find yourself going through religious motions? Do you find yourself trying to persuade or convince other people that you're closer to God than you really are? Is your heart far from the Lord? hardening towards God. May we not be a people who are like Caiaphas, where we can outwardly go through the motions and yet our hearts are far from God. Well, this same Sanhedrin that betrayed and murdered Jesus, as we're going to see, Lord willing, next week, they're about to murder someone else. The fifth indictment that Stephen brings is that Israel disobeyed the law. Stephen's accusers alleged that he spoke against God, against the temple, against the law. So he reminds them of God's word and how Israel had repeatedly turned their backs on the Lord. So he tells them, in essence, it's not me, it's you. Sanhedrin, it's you who has rejected the law. It's you who has resisted the Holy Spirit. It's you who has defiled the temple. For the law of Moses was given to you to point to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, 46? If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is saying the entire law, All of these laws in the Old Testament, they're pointing you to me. They murdered the one who Moses promised was coming. You see, the law was given to the people of God to show them that they couldn't keep it. Okay, if I can take just a quick, oh man. It's like algebra. Stay with me for a minute, okay? God gave his law to reveal his character, to show what he is like. He is holy and set apart. He gave his law to show that you and I can't keep it. When you and I see all that God demands of us, it's impossible for us to keep it. God gave his law to point to someone who would keep it. 
that Jesus is the perfect sinless son of God who kept the law perfectly on our behalf because God knows that we couldn't. But here's what we're gonna get one day. We're not here yet. You go to Galatians 5, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and then the Holy Spirit enables you to keep the law. Okay, we'll come back another day. Right now, Stephen is calling out the Sanhedrin because they murdered the one that the law was pointing to. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, is pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the one that the prophets were looking forward to. I'm the one that Moses was writing about. It's driving you to me. Well, praise God that Jesus, who is not only the lawgiver, he is the law keeper that he kept the law perfectly on our behalf. You see, we are not a people trusting in keeping religious laws. No, because the law only condemns us. We're not a people who are trying to get to heaven by our good works because our good works far, fall far short of God's perfect standard. We're not a people who think that we can get to God on our own. We are a people who are trusting in the perfect sinless life of Jesus for us. We are a people who believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly because he knows that we couldn't. We are a people who by grace are trusting not in what we can do for our salvation, but what Christ has done for our salvation. If today you're trusting in your good works to make you right with God, you are in danger. You cannot save yourself. And one of the dangers that you and I face living here in the American South is to think that because we're Southern and like sweet tea and we go to church sometimes that we're good with God. That doesn't save you. Your good works cannot save you on the last day. Your good behavior, your good intentions cannot save you on the last day. Only Jesus can save you. Today, trust in Christ. Believe the gospel. Trust in what he has done for you through his death on the cross. He gave his life for you at Calvary. His blood was shed for your forgiveness. And he was buried in a tomb, but it doesn't stay dead. On the third day, he defeats death. So anybody... Everybody who turns from sin and trusts in Christ, you will be received by God. You are accepted and forgiven forever. Oh, this is the greatest news the world has ever heard. And this is the gospel that saves us. May I say to you, do not trust in your good works. Trust in the perfect works of Christ. All of what he's done for you through his perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and soon his return. He's coming back to rescue and save and redeem all who are looking to him by faith. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? It's this. Do not harden your heart towards the Lord. Don't harden your heart. Oh, that you would understand the weight of this, that heaven and hell hang in the balance. Don't harden your heart towards the Lord. 
Here is Stephen turning the tables on the Sanhedrin. And when you think about it, David responded one way and the Sanhedrin responded another. When the tables were turned on David, he was ruined. He humbled himself. He wrote Psalm 51 as a psalm of repentance and confession. God, I am ruined without you, and I am guilty. I am broken, and I need mercy. The Sanhedrin responded with anger. And here's what I have found. That when someone is confronted with truth, they either get right or they get mad. Which one are you? As you are confronted with the reality that your good works cannot save you, that God is not interested in your outward religious life, He's not interested in the charade of what you're putting on this front for people to think that you're like, but that God wants your heart. And He has pursued you in the gospel. That through the death of His Son, He's made a way for all who will humble themselves and trust in Christ will be rescued and saved forever. David humbled himself. The Sanhedrin got angry. How are you going to respond?